Uh, if you want to turn to Philippians uh, on chapter 1, verses 1 to 18 is where we will be grounded tonight. Hopefully not for too long, for your sake and for mine. Uh, what time are we at? Oh, we're flying. Uh, let's just pray again before we turn to God's word. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for today and all that has been. And as we look ahead into the week, we just pray for all that will be as well, Lord. We ask for courage in encounters, uh, the opportunity to share your good news in a practical way and with words, and that together, Lord, as we partner in the gospel, as we work together, that we would, we would just be challenged and changed ourselves. We give you thanks for your word and for this letter to the church in Philippi and for the heart that was behind it. And we pray that over the days as we study that you would teach us something new, that at this time you would still our hearts, you would focus our minds, and you would encourage us for this week and for the weeks ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, reading from verse 1, I am reading from the New International Version. Sorry, John. John's tight. He's King James. KGV only. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of all of this, that he who begun a good work in you will carry it on until completion, until the day of until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have it in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how long for all of you for. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you might be able to discern what is best for and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Amen. Uh, for the last 
couple of years, really, uh, my career path changed slightly and I've become a minister in the Church of Ireland. Uh, some might call it ordained social work. Uh, I spend most of my time visiting throughout the week. Uh, cups of tea and biscuits is the stereotypical image and it's not far wrong, bar really, I don't really get offered cups and tea, but you're in houses, you're seeing people. Now, by demographics, most of the people that I interact with are of a a more vintage variety, shall we say. They're of an age. And so often I find myself in the old people's homes, or sorry, the residential care homes. That's the more affectionate term. The old people's homes, visiting when you're in the Church of Ireland, not always, but you tend to have an older congregation. And so often and throughout this time, you're just in and out of seeing different people through illness, through sickness. But also we get to provide services in the old people's homes. Those sort of... uh, where you sing with your granny services, if you know what I mean, once a month or twice a month in some of the different homes. Uh, One of those services in particular was in a home where I ended up interacting with a woman who didn't belong to our church, but who had a real uh, joyous affection. We'll call her Doreen, that wasn't her name, but uh, just to save her embarrassment. Doreen quite obviously had dementia, because every time she came to the service, she thought it was a gospel meeting in her street church, and she came with hallelujahs and shouts of praise, but she was always just full of so much joy, and it was so uh, great and fruitful, especially when you considered the rest of the the members of this home who were sitting there, who, in all honesty, were more like uh, stone statues. Uh, it was me and Doreen always singing, and that was about it. But no matter what I sang a cappella, she sang with me, probably half a verse behind and an octave out of tune, but she still sang. She had a great joy in her singing. Uh, one of the last services I did at that home, she arrived at more joyful than she normally was. And so after the service, we were chatting, and I said, Dora, Doreen, Doreen, we'll go for Doreen. Uh, <laughs> Dora's not her name either, don't worry. I just went for Dora the Explorer. Uh, I said, Doreen, you're in a, you seem in good form, what's going on? And she says, oh, son, I've just been with the Lord. And I said, well, you're still here, so I'm not really sure what you mean. And she says, oh, I've just had a dream, and the Lord was with me. Now, regardless of what we think of that, uh, it was just one of those moments where there was just a real sense of depth of joy with her. And she says, and he gave me a song. And I said, oh, she goes, do you want to hear it? And I said, sure, why not? And so she started to sing. And then she stopped and says, no, 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 that wasn't it. Uh, I'll sing it to you again. And she went this time with another verse and, and a slightly different tune. And, and she stopped again. But no, no, that, that wasn't it either. And I, I wish she went again. And this went on a few times. And uh, she looked at me in frustrated and said, Son, I've forgotten the song the Lord has given me. But I remember it. The sense of it, she said. It's about joy and about Jesus being my joy. And about Jesus being our all. And... Hard not to nearly cry at this woman because you're sitting with this woman who has dementia. And by the time you've left, she'll have forgotten that you were there. But that sense of presence and joy at that stage of life that was so obvious and so real for her. And the joy that she had in knowing Jesus and sharing Jesus and actually making sure that I knew Jesus. Because every time I came, she asked me, was I saved? And this was just after I led a service. It wasn't because... I was a Church of Ireland minister. It was probably just because of her dementia. But 
you get that sense. And it's that joy, I suppose, that we see working in this passage, that depth of joy of knowing Jesus and seeing Jesus and making Jesus known. It's not just throughout this passage, if we were sort of doing an introduction this evening. Joy is the dominant theme throughout this letter. Fifteen times Paul mentions it in the few verses that make up this letter. Joy, not not happiness in the sense of today's a good day, the weather's been nice, but joy that transcends circumstance and that transcends reality and that comes from something transcendent, Jesus, and making him known and knowing him. And that's what we see at work here, even from the off and the introduction in those sometimes strange to read verses when Paul introduces his letter in verses 1 to 2. Click ahead there, Philip, for me. We see a sense of joy in the togetherness from the gospel. Paul and Timothy, servants or slaves of Christ Jesus, as it says in other translations, to all the saints in in Christ and Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ with you. Paul's introduction is, is all about one thing. It's a thing that he unites for the rest of this letter. It's about partnership. It's about working together for Jesus and to Jesus. And, and we see that from the off, even by the fact that he mentions uh, Timothy's name here. He joins himself with Timothy. He makes evident his partnership with Timothy. And more than that as well this evening, and what, what's actually missing from this introduction? If you look at some of his other letters, he will refer to himself as Paul, the Apostle of Christ Jesus, but not here, because this is a church that he is at work with. It's a church that he delights with in his partnership, and he doesn't seemingly want to lord it over them. He wants to express that sense of familiarity with them, and so he doesn't raise himself above them. He doesn't state the authority that he has that comes from Christ. But he reminds them that he is but one of them, a servant of Christ. When he includes Timothy as well, it shows that sense of partnership and authority that Paul, yes, he is the the great apostle, but he is just a man working with others. He's not seeking to use his fame here or his authority to leverage Timothy into some position or to give Timothy a wee confidence boost or an ego boost. He's simply stating the reality of the fact He's working with people. It's profound, actually, when you stop and you think of of who Paul is and what Paul has done. This is the man who almost single-handedly wrote most of the New Testament that shapes our, our doctrine and our thinking. This is a man who brought the gospel to Asia and God then used to bring to Europe. He has fought against heretics. He has fought against people, uh, Judaizers, those who would try to legalize the faith. He has his own legacy, his own authority, and yet, actually, he makes no mention of it. Like Jesus, he sets it aside, and he doesn't cling to it or his status, because it's not about him. It's about the message. It's about the joy of contending for the gospel. We see as well... Even as you read these first two verses, the evidence of Paul's life being transformed. We see the fruits of the grace at work in him. You see his lack of title that reminds us of his humility. His mentioning of Timothy reminding us of his desire to work, not as one, but as many, as part of the body of Christ. His use of that term slave or servant that culturally isn't a nice image, but yet is so challenging and so profound because as a designation, it only points to one person, Jesus. 
He's reminding them of the reality of the kingdom, that power is not found in strength but in weakness, that the first are last and that the last are first. Go on again there. Next slide. Next slide. I'm getting ahead of myself. Thanks, Philip. We see then as he starts to address his, this church in verses sort of 3 to 8, one, the reality of what it is to live for Jesus, but more so the, the sense of thankfulness that he feels for this church. Sometimes when you study Philippians or when you read it or when you hear about it spoken or preached, and I'm sure you've heard it before and probably heard better sermons than this, it so often seems to be the, the, the pinnacle letter. All the other letters seem to address the churches in devastation, uh, there's sexual immorality, there's bad ethics, people aren't practicing what they preach, there's tribalism, there's factions. And this one, when we preach it, we, we sort of elevate it above because of the sense of joy that is in here. But we, we shouldn't lose sight of the reality here that Paul is writing to a struggling church. When you consider some of the context, and even when you look at Acts, they're being battered from every side. They are, they're being infiltrated by false teachers who want to add different things to the gospel. There are friends now fighting with each other over tactics used for the gospel. There is self-promotion and envy and bitterness this is a church that Paul gives thanks for and delights in, but it's a church that needs encouraged. It's a church that needs, in some sense, gentle rebuke. It's a church struggling in some way and wondering, perhaps, where God is. That it might be easier to retreat and to draw back from what they once held. It's a church that, in essence, has lost the joy that it once knew. And that's why joy is such a dominant theme. That's why Paul constantly points to that deep joy of Jesus. A joy that illuminates darkness, that brings hope into the darkest of the nights. And he reminds this esteemed yet struggling church that that joy is their joy. Because they are in Christ. And you see that in chapter 3 and verse 3. And as they stand together for Christ, that joy is made known and grows all the more. I don't know if you've what you're like with gifts. Uh, I'm not a great gift giver. It's partly because I keep forgetting people's birthdays. My mother has a significant birthday on Thursday. I'll not tell you what it is me of this approaching birthday so that I don't forget it and that I don't forget to gift my mother. I probably will. Uh, but when we receive something unexpected, something almost beyond what we comprehend sometimes, it's hard to find the words to express what we've been given. It's hard to find the words that really capture how we're feeling. That speechlessness almost is what we see in these first five verses, verses three to eight, in these, first, uh, in these next five verses. That real sense of thankfulness. Paul is thankful here for what he has received, the support of this church when he is struggling. It, that, but it's, it's not just about the possessions for him. It's not about the money. It's about what the money represents. It, their concern. He delights in their heart for him and that their heart and their, their gift shows their partnership with him. And so we see this section sort of flow in two ways. There's an initial statement of joy and thankfulness in verses 3 to 5, and then it's expanded and explained in verses 6 to 8. 
give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my prayers because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. You can imagine the scene. Paul is sitting in his cell. The chains are on his wrists and he's just had a long day. It's probably been a long period. Yes, he has joy, but he's tired, he's weary. And in that weariness, he begins to remember days of old, better days, so to speak. You can see him starting to to recall that wonderful church in Philippi. Hence, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of him. Those memories that give him strength, those memories that encourage him. It's amazing when you consider the circumstances here. He's not thanking God for things. He's thanking God for these people, for what they have done to him and what they represent to him. These weary Christians who have their own problems, their own troubles, but yet they're still concerned for him. They still show their concern by the sending of people and the sending of resources. It's a reminder to us of that fullness of partnership. That when we join together as expression, as a people, that it's more than just about doing. It's more than just about things. It's about growing together. That yes, we come from diverse churches and and different bodies. uh, But together we grow. And as we grow in Christ, that joy grows with us. In verse 5, if you look, it begins to shift. Paul's prayer moves from his thankfulness to the reasons why he's thankful. And then it lays the foundation of his confidence for the future. That regardless of what happens to him or to whoever is with him, Timothy, God will complete what he set out to do. He might be six feet under. He might be in chains. He might never be released from prisons. But yet he still has confidence. Because God is at work. In his partnership with this church. And in the world around them. Paul's joy here isn't. Is based on the. Paul's joy is based on the simple recognition. That his apostolic ministry. his, His work for Jesus is bearing fruit. And those fruit that he has planted is now starting to bear fruit. That this community, the Philippian church, is sharing the good news. If you go to the next slide, Philip. Next. Too many slides. So we see him expand on that reason for thankfulness in a twofold way in these verses. That sense that God sees through what he starts. And that sense that there is nothing that can stop the hand of God. That circumstances are not an indicator of where God is or what God is doing. That our reality, so to speak, the the, the positions that we find ourselves in are not an indication of what God is doing in the world. So Paul might be in chains. This church might be at war with itself. But God is still at work, says Paul. And their circumstances, the Philippians' circumstances, are not a sign of an absent God. They're not a sign of God withdrawing from them. They're a sign. It's a sign that God is with them. They are doing the work of the saints. And so Paul prays for them in verses 9 to 11. 
Next slide, Philip. If I'll be honest, prayer is one of my biggest personal struggles. Uh, I'm, I'm just not good at it. And I've come to accept that in a way, not in the sense that I don't pray, but just in not to grow frustrated with it. I have a desire to improve. I want to pray better, whatever that means. And I want to pray more and I want to have a closer relationship with Jesus. But I just find it hard. I find it hard because my mind starts to wander. Because when I start to pray, there seems to be so much to pray for. And then I, I get frustrated that I forgot to pray for this or that. I, I, I use different wee things. There's the prayer up, which is good, and it, it sort of gives you different things, and each time you open it, and stuff like that helps. But prayer is a personal struggle for me. I'm not a great prayer. I don't know about you, but in these verses, we see a simple prayer, a short prayer, and a prayer that actually is a challenge to us as we live, and a prayer that is a, is a, a model for us as we pray as well. In verse 4, Paul tells this church that he prays for them. And and here in verse 9, we see that picked up. A prayer that shows how he prays for them. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing and in knowledge and in every kind of discernment so that you can approve the things that are superior and can be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It seems so short, but it is so potent and it's so powerful. That opening phrase in verse 11, that your love may abound more and more in the knowledge and depth of love, I find personally quite interesting. It seems a strange mix, knowledge and love. And when you read around the different English translations, you get a different sense of it sometimes. The ESV and the NIV that we've read here talk about that love abounding. The, the NLT, the New Living Translation, talks about the overflow of love. Uh, the one that seemed to capture it best for me was a, a 1950s paraphrase that seemed to reference well and talked about a, a knowledge, a love that is full of knowledge and wise discernment, that you would grow in a love that is full of knowledge and wise discernment. Paul's prayer for this church is that as they know Jesus and, and grow in their love of Jesus, that that love would have effect on them and how they think, in how they interact with the world. That's knowledge and wise discernments. It seems so strange, but the reality of it is quite simple. If we love something, we want to get to know something. So Paul draws them back almost to the moment that they encountered Jesus, the moment that they met Christ, the moment that they came to faith, if you want to say. That love that was born at that moment, says Paul, is the same love that grows daily abounding more and more, literally outnumbering itself every day. It's that love that affects every aspect of our person, our personality, our thinking, our living, our doing. The love leaves no part of our body unclaimed, no part of who we are untouched, and and then it touches the world around us. Paul is writing to this struggling church, but this growing church, and he's reminding them of the simple things that love abounds within them. That they have known love and they need to know that love all the more in the, when they're under attack. Hence he prays that they would increase in this love and this wisdom. It, it, this should challenge us, it challenges me, simply for the simple two statements. Are we abounding in that love? A love that is full of knowledge of Jesus and wise discernment of how we interact with the world. 
Are we growing in our own personal love of Christ? Are we loving those around us? And are we loving and living in the world in the way of Christ? And then are we praying? And as we pray, does our prayer reflect this? That sense of desire, that sense of growth, as Paul prays for this church, for ourselves and for those who we walk with. Paul is praying for his brothers and sisters in Christ. He's praying that the love that they once knew, they would continue to know, and more so than that, that they would know all the more, because his, it's like the song, it's like the verse, his love is an ocean, or no, that's, that's not it. Never mind, I'll edit that bit out. It's strange to understand and to think about. It's the intermixing of love and knowledge, but think about it again. You, John Graham meets a, a woman, Let's say, I'm going to use John as an example. Or no, we'll go with Alexander. Alexander got engaged over the weekend, folks. Not to John, to a different John. <laughs> Congratulations. But Alexandra met someone and got to know them. And the more she got to know him, the more she loved him. Yeah? And the more she loves him, the more she wants to get to know him. It's that cycle of knowledge and love. And as we know, we want to love more. And as we love more, we want to know. And that love takes hold. And so we see the practical outworkings of this as well uh, in verses 9 and 10. The same phrase is used in verse 10, is used in Hebrews 5.14 uh, to talk about uh, those who are feeding on solid food and as they feed on the food of Christ they have the ability to distinguish from good and evil. We see that practical outworking further in verse 10 as Paul wants us to have the ability to discern what is best in the world and again the phrase that is used there in the original language is used similarly in Romans 2 and it talks about those who know the the statutes of God, that's those who have been instructed in the ways of Yahweh but yet their life does not reflect it. Paul wants us as he prays for this church to know what it is to live for Jesus and then to live for Jesus. And so the challenge is simple. If we love him, that is Christ Jesus, then we're growing in him. And as we grow in him, that love should be displayed into the world around us. Specifically, that love should be displayed into how we interact with one another if we are in the church, the body of Christ. To love Jesus is to love his body, his body being the church. And so Paul's, all the Paul's images tie together. He seems to be gently challenging this church for his future rebukes in chapters 2 and 3. That if their love is abounding, then they will not be disunited in their partnership for good news. They will stand united. And so it goes on and the prayer follows a sort of threefold direction that one, as they love Christ, they would know what it is to live for Christ. Two, they're being sanctified or made perfect until the day of coming, Christ's coming, when they will be perfected in Christ. And then three, that it's all for the glory of God. That as we live, as we love, as we serve this week at Expression and beyond in church, 
it's not about us. It's not about giving expression a good name. So whether there's 10 of us doing this or 10,000, it's all for the glory of God. He goes on as we draw to a close. Uh, go on, yeah, no, stay there. We see in these last sections of verses, specifically 12 to 18, a challenge, an encouragement, and a comfort. We see that God is at work in this world in, in ways that the world can never comprehend and that nothing will stop him. And then we see that the only thing that matters is Jesus Christ and making him known. Verses 12 to 14. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has actually resulted in the advance of the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is in the cause of Christ. I don't know if you've ever met someone who has been persecuted for their faith. Or if you've ever seen different videos from Open Doors, perhaps, or are those stories of those people who seem to live in worlds that are so foreign from us, and yet their faith seems so real and so deep. I had the privilege of, of it randomly interacting with someone of that sort of reality in 2016 when I was in Kenya. I was staying in an Anglican guest house, and a few rooms down there was a there was a a local person staying and I was there for four or five days and they always seemed a bit iffy, if I'm being honest. They always seemed to be watching me and I always wondered what they wanted. And, and then eventually they approached me and they started to talk and, and they shared their story. And it was the story of a reality that so often we hear but we don't comprehend. He told me about his conversion to Jesus. He was at once an Islamic scholar, a Muslim, an imam. He once taught in, in, in one of their holy houses and Jesus came to him in a dream, he said. And then from that dream, he gave his life to the Lord and then he started to, to do what he had done. But this time for Jesus, he started to share the good news of Jesus. And because of the success that he was having, because of how God was using him, he found his life threatened. He found his life threatened to the point where he had to flee. He had to move to. Uh, he had to move from where he was to where I met him, and even then, that was only for a short time. He was constantly moving around to avoid those who had been following him. His brother was converted with him, and his brother was somewhere in Uganda. They had separated to, to better their chances of survival. Uh, it's it's a profound thing to hear because you want to do something but yet you can't or pray and cry and yet as I talked with him and shared with him he had no sense of regret there was no frustration on his face he only had joy only had a heart for more his only frustration was that he wasn't able to share the good news of Jesus when I met him, he literally had nothing, yet he had far more than I had ever had. A joy that transcended his circumstances. And it's that joy that Paul is talking about here. That joy, that reality that actually God is at work. Read here verse 12 again. 
Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has actually happened to me has, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. This church are concerned for him. They've heard that he is imprisoned, he is in chains, and Paul says, you don't need to worry. God is at work here. God is using this opportunity. It's actually good. I've had new opportunities to tell people about Jesus. And more than that, everyone knows why I'm here. I'm here for Jesus. Paul's circumstances did not dictate his reaction or his reality in sight of God. He knew that God was at work. And that is the simple truth of this section, that regardless of where we find ourselves, the frustrations that we find ourselves in, even this week, what we find ourselves doing, no matter how mundane it may seem or pointless, God is at work. More than that, that to serve God, regardless of how glorious it is or awful it may seem, It's the greatest privilege of all. And as we adapt to difficult realities and difficult situations, as we adjust ourselves and comprehend that sense of God at work, as as we root ourselves and our identities in Jesus, then that joy starts to affect those around us. Verse 13. Verse 14. And because of my chains, most of my brothers and sisters have been confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. They they have looked at Paul, their great teacher and leader, and they have seen him in chains. And then they've seen, actually, that the chains cannot even stop him. The chains are not restricting him. They might restrict his movement, but they do not restrict his ministry. He's still preaching Jesus. He's still the same person. And that consistency of joy and character then encourages and emboldens this church in Rome. It's a challenge to us and it's a challenge to the Philippian church that yes, they may be under difficulty, but they have to keep on going. Paul moves on to finish uh, by pointing to another situation that flows out of that declaration of confidence and joy that those around him are sharing the gospel, having been emboldened by him to a more difficult situation. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and strife, but others out of goodwill. These do so out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ Jesus out of rivalry, not sincerely seeking to cause me anxiety in my imprisonment. And so we're appointed, we're we're presented with a, a twofold reality of motivation that there are those who know and love Jesus and their heart is for Jesus, says Paul, and so they preach Christ. And then there are those who are selfish, who are only motivated by their own desires, their own status, and actually more sinister than that, out of envy at Paul, they want to cause him anxiety and his imprisonment. And yet they have no effect. They have no uh, touch on Paul's reality because no matter the heart behind it, says Paul, as long as the message is true and being proclaimed, that's all that matters. It's a challenge for us this week, perhaps, as we go out together 
as we maybe sometimes find ourselves frustrated with one another and questioning the motivations that may inspire different acts to trust that God is at work and that as long as the truth of the gospel and the, the, the gospel is made known, then that's all that counts, that God is at work. More than that, that God is at work in those people and that God is at work in the world around us. That is what we're here to do this week, to make Christ known. You can almost hear Paul breathe in as he writes these words or has them transcribed. What does it matter? Just that in every way, whether out of false motivations or true, Christ is proclaimed. It's a rhetorical question, but he, he could apply it to so many different situations. He may be asking of the situation of disunity in this church, or the motivation or the struggle, and he says, what does it matter? Even expanding on his own suffering, and he says, what does it matter? His chains, what does it matter? The wrong motivations, what does it matter? None of these contextual things matter in light of the one thing, Jesus, and making him known. A reality and a reminder to us this week of why we're here and why we gather. Not for our benefit or our promotion, but for Christ. It's all about Jesus and making him known. A reminder that our joy and our identity come not from who we are or what we have, but whose we are. That when we are in Christ, then nothing in this world, no matter how hard, and it's not to trivialize or dismiss that sometimes those difficult phases that we go through, the reality of, of doubts or suffering, but that in light of Jesus and what he has done for us to secure our eternity, that everything else just starts to fail and fade into, into nothing. Paul has grasped this, and so must we. And so this week of expression, regardless of what we do or the circumstances we might find ourselves in, if the weather's good or if it's raining, if we're bored or if we find ourselves disunited or frustrated or even perhaps we're wondering about the motivations of some, the only thing that matters for us is Jesus and making him known. Making him known to the, the, the world around us, put it down, and to ourselves and to one another. As we grow in love, and that love affects how we live and as we serve together. When we grasp that, the joy of Christ, the depth of that love that we can forever go deeper and deeper into, and the outworking of that love, then Portadown will be transformed. And people will know a better future. And the world around us will not be the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the challenge and encouragement of this letter. And we pray, Lord, that as we look through it, at it throughout the week, that one, you would speak to our own individual circumstances, and two, that you would challenge us all the more. And so, Lord, we pray tonight that our love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight that we may be able to discern what is best and that we may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness, 
our salvation that comes through Jesus working in us and that all that we would do this week in our conversations with one another, in our interactions with people and the world around us would be to the glory and praise of God. For Christ's name we pray. Amen.